0: Chapter 5, Currents of Environmentalism, by Joan Martínez Allier, from the Autonomous University of Barcelona. There are three main currents of environmentalism. These three currents could be named as, first, the cult of wilderness, second, the gospel of eco-efficiency, and third, the mantra of environmental justice, or the environmentalism of the poor. They are as three big branches of a single tree, or three cost-cutting streams of the same river. In the United States, the Cult of Wilderness has its origin in the work of Scottish-American naturalist John Weir and the creation of Yosemite and Yellowstone National Parks. There were similar movements in Europe and other continents. Even in India, where the doctrine of the environmentalism of the poor was put forward in the 1980s, in opposition to the Cult of Wilderness, there are great local traditions of bird-watching and other forms of upper and middle-class nature conservation. In terms of the human and economic resources available, this movement is indeed large. Its main concern was historically, since the 19th century, the preservation of pristine nature by setting aside natural areas from where humans would be excluded, and the active protection of wildlife for its ecological and aesthetic values, and not for any economic or human livelihood value. The World Conservation Movement has been increasingly drawn to an economic language. Although many of, it, many of its members claim to believe in deep ecology, the intrinsic value of nature, and revere nature as sacred, the mainstream movement decided to join the economists. The T.E.E.B. reports, the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, a project supported by the World Wildlife Fund, and indeed the whole I.U.C.N. in 2008 to 2011, published under the United Nations Environment Programme's auspices, follows this light To make the loss of biodiversity visible, we need to focus not on single species, but on ecosystems, and then on ecosystem services to humans, and finally we must give economic valuations to such services because this is what will attract the attention of politicians and business leaders towards conservation. The TEEB enthusiastically praises mining corporation Rio Tinto's principle of net positive impact. This principle suggests that nation-states or corporations can engage in open-cast mining anywhere, provided that the state or business support a natural park there, or replant a mangrove yonder. John Muir would have been horrified by such proposals. The second current of environmentalism is, perhaps, then, the most powerful today. Its name recalls Samuel Hayes' 1959 book Conservation and the Gospel of Efficiency, the Progressive Conservation Movement, 1890-1920, to which explains the early efforts of federal environmental policy in the United States to reduce waste and also to conserve forests or turn them into tree plantations. One main public figure of eco-efficiency was Gifford Pinchett, who trained in forestry in Europe. The concept of sustainability, Nachthaltigkeit, had been introduced in 19th century forest management in Germany, not to denote respect for pristine nature, but on the contrary, to indicate how monetary profits could be made from nature by obtaining optimum sustainable yields from tree plantations. This idea can be seen in today's panoply of recipes on sustainable technologies, environmental economic policies, taxes, tradable fishing quotas, markets and pollution permits, optimal rates of resource extraction, Substitution of manufactured capital for lost natural capital, Valuation and payment for environmental services, Dematerialization of the economy, habitat and carbon trading, and, in summary, sustainable development. The gospel of eco-efficiency goes together with doctrines of ecological modernization and belief in so-called environmental Kuznets curves. The words sustainable development became widely known in 1987 with the publication of the Brundtland Report. Degrowthers are against sustainable development on two counts. First, they do not believe that economic growth is or can be environmentally sustainable. Second, many of them are also against the very idea of development, because, as Arturo Escobar, Wolfgang Sachs, and others explained in the 1980s, it has meant a pattern of uniform change towards an American way of life, which is very different from today's emphasis in some countries of the South, of a buen vivir, or sumac kawsay. The degrowth movement often emphasizes that the benefits of increased eco-efficiency can easily be nullified through the operation of the Jevons Paradox, or rebound effect. Nevertheless, most governments and the United Nations align themselves with this gospel of eco-efficiency. Meanwhile, the environmental justice movement, which is certainly not as well organized as the IUCN, is an assortment of local resistance movements and networks. These movements combine livelihood, social, cultural, economic and environmental issues, They set their moral economy in opposition to the logic of extraction of oil, minerals, wood or agrofuels at the commodity frontiers, defending biodiversity and their own livelihood. This includes claims for climate justice and for water justice. In mounting resistance to environmental injustices, there are many people around the world who are killed while defending the environment. Poor people do not always think and behave as environmentalists. To believe this would be blatant nonsense. The environmentalism of the poor arises from the fact that the world economy is based on fossil fuels and other exhaustible resources, going to the ends of the earth to get them, disrupting and polluting both pristine nature and human livelihoods, encountering resistance by poor indigenous people who are often led by women. Poor and indigenous people sometimes appeal for economic compensation, but more often they appeal to other languages of valuation, such as human rights, indigenous territorial rights, human livelihoods, and the sacredness of endangered mountains or rivers. The conservation movement has ignored the environmentalism of the poor, but also the degrowth movement and the steady state economics movement with their European or North American roots have downplayed until recently the intensity of the fight for resources around the world. However, one main hypothesis in political ecology is that there are more and more resource extraction conflicts and waste disposal conflicts because of the increase in the global societal metabolism. Many such environmental conflicts around the world, classified by country and commodity, are gathered in an open-access database by the EJOLT project, www.ejatlas.org. There have been attempts to bring the conservation movement closer to the environmentalism of the poor and indigenous people who fight against deforestation, agrofuels, mining, tree plantations and dams. For instance, mangroves can be defended against shrimp aquaculture, because of the livelihood needs of women and men living there, but also because of the biodiversity and beauty. Despite opportunities for bringing together the conservation movement with environmental justice, this is often difficult, not only because the conservation movement consorts too closely with the second current, the engineers and economists, but also because the conservation movement has sold its soul to companies like Shell and Rio Tinto. On the other hand, the degrowth movement could easily connect to the movement for environmental justice, and the environmentalism of the poor. However, the political left, for example, Presidents Lula and Rousseff in Brazil, the Communist Party in West Bengal in India, or Presidents Evo Morales in Bolivia, or Rafael Correa in Ecuador, does not like the environmentalism of the poor and the indigenous that explicitly fights against the inroads of the generalized market system and the growth of societal metabolism in order to have an economy that sustainably fulfills the food, health, education, and housing needs of everybody. Despite the deep cleavages we have noticed between the three main currents of environmentalism, there is hope of a confluence among conservationists concerned with the loss of biodiversity, the many people concerned with the injustices of climate change who push for repayment of ecological debts and promote changes in technology towards solar energy, ecofeminists, some socialists and trade unionists concerned about health at work and who moreover know that one cannot adjourn economic justice through promises of economic growth forever. There's also hope of confluence between urban squatters who preach autonomy from the market, agroecologists, neo-rurals or back-to-the-landers, the degrowthers and the partisans of prosperity without growth in some countries, the large international peasant movements like Via Campesina, the pessimists or realists on the risk of uncertainties of technical change, the indigenous populations who demand the preservation of the environment at the commodity frontiers and the world environmental justice movement. In terms of policies, the degrowth movement often advocates resource caps. This already exists in some countries as limits to emissions of carbon dioxide, and therefore on the burning of fossil fuels. It could be extended to minerals and the use of biomass. Proposals such as the Yasuni ITT initiative from Ecuador, and similar attempts in Nigeria to leave the oil in the soil, fit perfectly with the degrowth perspective. The environmental justice movement, including the environmentalism of the poor, coincides with another main platform in the degrowth movement, which is to downgrade the social relevance of the economy in the sense of crematistics. This means to take the generalised market system out of the collective imagination as a principle of social organisation, by showing that many people around the world defend their right of access to natural resources for livelihood through systems of communal management, i.e. commons.